As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, to pray with me. Uh, Our Father, we're grateful to uh, have the word of God. Um, What would we do? Had you not communicated so clearly to us as to who you are and who we are, most particularly all of this in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't given it your spirit to breathe out these words through these authors so that we can have them and even your spirit within us to illuminate, to guide, to help us to see and understand and believe and value all that's here. And so, Father, be with us. Help us as we listen to what is read so that by your spirit we may embrace and believe all that is here. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ephesians in chapter 1, New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, please. This, of course, is the word of the Lord. Verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is the first Sunday of Lent in the Christian year. Some people, for some people that's an important thing. For some people it isn't, needn't be, could be. However, you uh, know of these things, but it's a time for us uh, Uh, We gather together in this time of year, moving from Advent, preparation for the coming of Christ, Christmas, the coming of Christ, thinking even of his second coming, Epiphany, who is he? He's the king who's come for the whole world, uh, the very son of God in whom his father is well pleased. And now this season of Lent, and we think through together um, the sufferings of Christ, how it is that he accomplished our salvation. And I say that because it's related to the sermon particularly, but during this season of Lent, we have communion every Sunday. We just have done that just to mark it off and to mark it out for us. Uh, it's a feast day Sundays. Well, Lent for some are days of fasting, but on Sundays we gather together and feast. And so thus for the next so many weeks um, through Palm Sunday, we will uh, have communion together. But today, as we come to this particular text, what we see is that Paul is is praying. He comes to 
to, to pray. He went from praising, you remember verses 3 through 14, where he begins by blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing uh, in Christ in the heavenly places and so forth. So it's a, it's a big doxology. It's a big praise, 3 through 14, those verses. And now he turns to pray. And you can see um, that his prayer is related to what he said and to what is to come as well. Verse 15, Paul says, for this uh, reason, all right, for this reason he comes to pray because of what God has done, that God is sovereign over our salvation, uh, and because he sees in them the work of God. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints. In other words, he says, I know that verses 3 through 14, this praise that God has chosen you before the foundations of the world, be holy and blameless in his sight, and in love he predestined you uh, for adoption as sons, um, through the redemption that comes through Christ, uh, and, and, and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He knows that's true of these people to whom he writes, and he knows it's true because he's seen something. He's seen their faith in Jesus. And as we've mentioned, how do you know if you've been chosen by God? Well, because you believe in Jesus. That's the, that's, that's, that's the evidence, you see. And he says, I know that you believe in Jesus because I see your love for all the saints. These two always go together, faith and love. Uh, to believe, of course. Uh, we know that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know from uh, what Romans 5 that um, we have been justified by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God. So we've been declared holy, been declared righteous by God uh, by faith, not by our works, but by faith. Paul sees faith in Jesus, and he says, oh, they've been justified. Even he'll say in Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So, so Paul sees their faith and their love, and he says, oh, this is true of you. And so he's going to move from praising God for salvation to thanking God for their salvation. And notice how he puts it. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Not thanks to you. <laughs> Paul realizes that this faith and love come from God as a gift to them. And so he isn't thanking them for their faith or thanking them for the love that they're showing to each other. He's thanking God because what he sees is that God's been at work in them. And so he gives thanks to God. And that's very consistent, of course, with what he's just been praising God about. That God is the author of our salvation. He says, I see it in them, God. So thank you for them. Uh, you've saved them. So, so Paul is, is praying and he, and, he, and he prays this prayer, you see, of thanksgiving. One of the things that we notice, just right off the bat, is that for Paul, there seems to be no real tension between the sovereignty of God, which is what he expresses in verses 3 through 14, that God is sovereign, he's the one who's chosen us, he's the one who's predestined us and all that. There isn't any tension at all in Paul between God's sovereignty and praying. Now for us, we just sort of scratch our heads 
At least I do from time to time. If God is sovereign over all things, why then do I need to pray? If he's going to do what he's going to do, why does he need me in the midst of that? In fact, if God is both sovereign and wise, why does he even need my suggestions? I mean, it would be scary to me if God scratched his head after my prayers and said, never thought of that. Right? Now, chances are he didn't because what I'm praying about is just wacky sometimes. So God may not have, may not have been on his page, if you understand that. But, 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 but really, um, it would be scary to me for God to, to, to say, well, that sure changed my mind about that. Really? But Paul has no hesitation at all to pray. None whatsoever. Now, I know we can think of all kinds of rationales for what well, we do pray. We, we say that, well, prayer has been ordained by God as the means through which he, 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 he um, succeeds in doing his will, at least some of it. We go, okay, I understand that. I understand that. And we can even, we can say that we're made in the image of God, thus we're made to be communicators, so we communicate with each other, we communicate with God. We understand that. We can even say that there's this relationship with God. And how, how can there be a relationship unless we talk to him? He speaks to us by his word. So how could there be? A, we understand that. But there's still something mysterious about all of this and a sovereign God and non-sovereign human beings who pray, make requests that God would do this or God would do that, you see. And we have instructions in the scripture about praying. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Uh, we have a book of prayers in the scripture, the book of Psalms. We have examples of prayers throughout the scriptures. This one I just read, and I read uh, previously in the service from Colossians 1, another prayer. Uh, there's a prayer in Ephesians 3 that we'll get to sometime uh, that we'll talk through as well as we work our way through this letter. But So there's, there's examples of prayers uh, there as well. So there doesn't seem to be any... Even apology for prayer. There doesn't even, even be a defense for why we ought to pray. It's just, it's just, well, of course we pray. It's just here in the scripture. And we're to pray. What's fascinating to me very often, though, is that when I read the prayers in the scriptures, they seem very different sometimes than my own. I, we are, I think, pretty good at crisis praying. We're pretty good at emergency praying. We're pretty good if, if something really difficult comes our way and we feel, because of the difficulty of the circumstance, powerless, then as believers, we're fairly quick to begin to pray, to be, to be helped, because we realize we can't, God can. I don't understand this. Perhaps he does, but that doesn't even matter at the moment. Please just help me through this moment. And all that is good. It's, it's good to recognize our powerlessness. It's good to recognize the power of God and the goodness of God and the wisdom of God. And so those kinds of prayers, I think, are good, those kinds of emergency praying prayers. But, but... As I read through the prayers in Scripture, very often they're not emergency ones. Oh, sometimes in the Old Testament. The enemies are around me. I don't know what to do with my eyes are on you kind of prayers. But here we find one that's based uh, on the praise that he has made about the goodness of God's blessings and the spiritual blessings and how they've worked in our lives in the thanksgiving and I need to pay attention to this. I need to ask myself the question, do I pray like this? Do I pray like this? Well, how does the apostle pray? What does he pray 
4. Notice, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. So he's giving thanks. Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, he's, he's, he's praying that they know something. He's praying that they have a knowledge of God, that they actually know God. Not just simply know things about God. You need to in order to know him. But to know him, that is, to really know him. You remember what Jeremiah uh, said, Jeremiah chapter 9 and uh, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He says, really, what's really important is that you know me. You know how I work. And that I've had dealings with you. That's how J.I. Packer puts it in his little book, Knowing God. He says that God has had dealings with us. And we know God because we know that he's dealt with us. So when Paul prays for this kind of knowledge, he's praying for a kind of knowledge that isn't just, I know facts about God, but, but I know God because he's dealt with me. I've experienced God, and thus I know him. Uh, similar to some other prayers, I, the one I read this morning out of uh, Colossians in chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruits in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul says, I want to pray that you know him so that you can walk with him and walk in a way that's pleasing to him. Because if you know him, that's what this is for. And then, as you do that, your knowledge of him will increase. It will grow. And so that's what he's praying for. And then in Philippians, in chapter 1, a very similar prayer. Paul says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. So Paul, here again, he's praying that they know and that they actually know God. Not just things about him, but really know him. And so he's praying that God would give them a spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Now, in, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, uh, and it has a capital S for spirit, spirit of wisdom. Some versions have a small s. Um, doesn't matter particularly, other than I would suggest that it's probably a capital S, the Holy Spirit, uh, because the Holy Spirit is known to us as the spirit of truth. You remember when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was going to come, he referred to him as the Spirit of Truth in John chapter 15. And he said, he'll bear witness of me. He's the Spirit of Truth. He's, he's the Spirit of Revelation. He'll, he'll teach you about me. In fact, in chapter 16, he goes on, Paul, uh, John does, to quote Jesus saying that the Spirit of Truth, Jesus says, will take from what is mine and declare it to you to make known these things. And so, spirit of truth. This doesn't mean they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They did. He already said they were sealed with the Spirit. 
Paul write in Romans chapter 8 that if we're children of God, then we have the Spirit of God. But here he says, I want you to experience a ministry of the Holy Spirit that's a spirit of wisdom and revelation. We would call that uh, the ministry of illumination, that, that the Holy Spirit would make these things known to us. And again, not simply on the words of a page. He has made them known to us in the words of this page. We read all the spiritual blessings that they had. I mean, you want to say to Paul, what, what more can you pray for? I mean, you've already said we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. What's really left? Well, Paul doesn't pray that they get a second blessing or a third blessing or a fourth blessing. He's, he says, I want you to know the blessings you've had. I want you to know the blessings that are yours in Christ. So I've, you, I've listed them. I've praised God for them. But now I want the Holy Spirit to come. I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and your knowledge of him so that you would really grasp these things. They'd be real in the context of your experience. And you would say, yes, I know them. And yes, I know them. Because God has had dealings with me. He's worked these in me. So he prays. And so he prays, and may God give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in your knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. These eyes, we can see their bodies, but he says your heart has eyes too. And your heart can see things or not see things. Your heart can have good vision or bad vision. And so he says, what I want you to see is that, to realize that sin distorts our hearts Ability to really see what's really true and to value what's really valuable and to know what's really beneficial and to know what's really good and to know what's really worth it. Sin distorts all of that. And he says, so I want you to have this Holy Spirit to come with his ministry of illumination and give you wisdom and revelation and your knowledge of God that he would open the eyes of your heart so you'd really see what's good. You'd really see what's valuable. You really see what's beneficial. We really see what satisfies. Because when sin comes and distorts that, we miss it. He says, no, 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 I want you to really see it. I want your eyes to really be open. I don't want you to be short-sighted nearsighted. I want you to see the whole of it. So here are the great blessings that you've had because of Christ that are really yours. Now I want you to really know them and really see their great value. And so he kind of summarizes them like this. He says, I want you to know the hope to which you have been called, or literally it would be the hope of his calling. It is his calling of you. The hope of his calling the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, that is, what is yours, because you belong to Christ, what is your inheritance? And then also, I want you to know the power that is towards, coming towards, directed at, all those who believe. So that's what he's praying. Do you you ever pray like that? I don't know. Uh, Do you pray that God enable me to know the hope of your calling enabled me to really know and see and value the glorious inheritance 
that this is mine. And God, enable me really to know and to experience this power that you say is towards me (laughs) as one who believes. So let's look at this first one. He prays that God would, uh, that uh, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have, uh, to which he has called you. And we talk about this kind of calling. We're we're really hearkening back, in a sense, to the beginning of our Christian lives. Our Christian life begins, if you will, at least in our own experience, with the calling of God. We know that it begins before the foundation of the world in one sense, but it begins with God calling us. He calls upon us. Now, we call upon him. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We need to do that. But our calling upon him is subsequent to his calling of us. In theological proper, we call this effectual calling. It's an effective call of God where the Holy Spirit makes it real to us and takes away our resistance by giving us a new life so that we may be oriented to God and trust and trust in him. Um, the, the best image of that, at least biblical one for me, is Lazarus being called by Jesus to come alive. Uh, Lazarus would affirm that calling later, but it took God to raise him, if you will, from the dead. And so, so Paul will talk in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together uh, with Christ. So it's that calling. Paul would know that calling. I mean, how else could he describe his own conversion other than that somehow the Lord came to him and called him and that call was effective, that he believed, which was as big a turnaround as one could ever imagine from Saul of Tarsus, persecutor, terrorizer of the church, to being one who believed Paul can only describe that, explain that the way he did in chapter, the earlier verses in chapter 1. And now to being called. And he says, so, so we've been called. And, and the, the point here is that there's a purpose. God has a purpose for which he's called us. We have a hope, an expectation. That, that we, we've been called to be his. So, so now what? And this is a good thing. We expect good, you see. As we've said before, we might... Expect bad, but that isn't our hope, right? When a student takes an exam, they don't leave saying, I hope I failed. Right? They say, I, I think I'm going to. <laughs> but the hope really is somehow everybody else will do worse and I'll, I'll pass this exam somehow by the professor's grace. And so, so we hope in, for that which is good. So what's the hopeful, what's the hope expectation here of, of our, of our calling? Well, uh, when we uh, look through the scripture, and I just jotted some down, we look through the scripture, notice this. Uh, Romans chapter 1 says we've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. What a great expectation that I'm one who belongs to Jesus. What's the, what's the fruit of that? What's the outworking of that? We're called into fellowship with his son, Jesus, our Lord. We're called to be holy. We're called to be saints, holy ones. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, we've been called to a holy calling, to walk in holiness. Um, We've been called to love and serve. Uh, Galatians 5 says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We've been called to live in peace. Paul will write and we'll see it, wrote and we'll see it in chapter 4 of Ephesians. I therefore, Paul, 
uh, therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirits and the bond of peace. We've been called to suffer. Peter writes, for the di- to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, we may have peace within the church who will have opposition from without. We're called to persevere. Philippians 3.14, Paul writes, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're called to glory. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he who calls you into this, into his own kingdom and glory. Peter writes, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So you see, we're to know the blessing of this calling, this wonderful expectant hope of living as people who belong to Jesus, people who he's working in to make holy, uh, for people who have been called to love and serve each other, you see, to people who are called to glory. So, so Paul prays we'd know that. You just wouldn't be able to write those down, jot those down, make a list of those things, put it in your pocket and be done with it. But we'd actually know, know that. For instance, we need to, we need to know um, our calling, that calling for which we have been chosen before the foundations of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. We need to really know that. That's, that's a difficult thing to hang on to, to value that holiness in a world that doesn't value that holiness at all. In a world that doesn't reinforce that holiness at all. In the world that doesn't incentivize us at all to be holy. He says, no, 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 this is really valuable, this holiness. Pray that the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of your hearts in such a way that you'll see the value of this life of holiness. You see, we can be tempted to pride, to self-promotion, to what causes us to look good to our peers, uh, tempted to fit in, to cheat, to get ahead, to lie, to cover our mistakes and failures, to further our career or standing by lying to gossip, by putting others down so we can look good rather than to uh, forgive. Uh, we'd rather hold a grudge uh, to lose our temper. We might be tempted to intimidate so we can get what we want. Tempted to seek uh, sinful sexual pleasures for the moment. Uh, the world tempts us. And we need to be praying, Paul says, that God would open the eyes of our hearts to see the value of holiness. Because we've been chosen before the foundations of the world to be holy. We've been predestined for adoption. And he says, I want you to be able to, to really know that, to really see that. Not just words on a page, but, but Holy Spirit, come and enable me to know that I really do uh, belong to you. So often it's very easy for us in the world in which we live to feel as if we don't fit in, to feel as if nobody cares, to, 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 to feel as if it doesn't really matter to anybody if I succeed or if I fail or, or if anything good comes my way or if I'm able to make any good out of my life. I, I talk to uh, students uh, 
all the time, very often, about, about life and the fear that exists that will anything come of my life? And does anybody really care? And Paul says, oh, that your eyes, the very eyes of your heart may be opened up so that you see that you're a child of God. He really cares. You always fit in with him. You're in his family. You can't get out of there. And and he has a plan, a destination for you. And that plan and that destination is, is for you to be glorified. So please, God, open my eyes. That I can see that. Open the eyes of our children so they can see that, you see. We can read it to them and they can check it off and we can know it and pass a test on it and all those kinds of things. But Paul says, that's great. That's step one. Step two, and don't leave this out, is to pray that the Spirit of God will make this real, that you'll know it and know God through it, his dealings with you. Because you see, we've been called to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glorious grace. We've not been called to disgrace, though it may feel that way in the world in which we live. But he says, no, no, that day will come when you, with my son, will be exalted. You'll be glorified. Oh, it's real. Pray that you know that and you value that, you see. And you value that. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Know that. And then secondly, he says, uh, pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may, may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so if, if our calling harkens us back to the beginning of our Christian life, then this inheritance uh, pushes us all the way to the end of our Christian life, to when we receive this great inheritance that is ours. And Paul says, I want him to know the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints. That word riches, as Americans, we're thinking dollar signs, I know. But, but he says, no, no, there's nothing more valuable than this. I mean, if you learn today that, that, that you're an heir of $5 million in somebody's estate, that would, you would just sparkle for a little while, I suspect. But, but, but he says, no, 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 I want you to get this. I want you to understand that this inheritance that is to come is, 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 is more valuable than anything else. And it's so easy for us to say, well, that's not for a long time. What really matters is right now. And so then we move into saying, what can the world give to me? And we, we move into this love of the world. And he says, no, 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 no. You need to see the value of your inheritance, what really is to come. You remember the parable of the sower. And a couple of different soils that uh, the metaphor was taught to us that there were sufferings and persecutions because of the word that would come to us and it would choke out this word and, 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 and there was the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that would, would cause us to dry up why? because all we can see is the suffering and what we're, what we're losing and the persecution and the cost to us and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. We're seeing what, what we might not have and, and our concentration is upon all of that. And, and he says, no, 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 you need, to, you need to have a bigger vision. 
Your eyes need to see something. What they need to see is the great inheritance that really, really is yours. And, and, and so, so see it, you see. The rich young man, as we call him, the rich young ruler, didn't see it. Jesus says, turn your back on all of that and come and follow me. And he looked at all this stuff and he looked at all Jesus and he looked at his standing in the eyes of the people and he looked at Jesus and he says, I'll have my stuff in my standing. Because he couldn't see it. He couldn't see what was in Jesus. He couldn't see the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. And so Paul says, I want you to, I want you to pray that you'd, you'd see it. I think, I don't know what he had in his mind when he had this expression in his mind, but in, in Romans 8, he says, For I, can t- I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is bit to be revealed to us. He saw it. He saw it. These weren't platitudes. He says, I know this. I know that whatever I give up now, whatever is taken from me because I'm a follower of Christ, isn't worth it. What's worth it is what is really to come, you see. That's what's worth it. He says, and and how do we get there? He says, well, it isn't just memorizing all the verses. That's important. You've got to know it. But he says, it's also having the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Both of these together, you see. There's a great expression uh, I've quoted, I don't know why, B.B. Warfield lately. But uh, Warfield was a Princetonian theologian at the turn of the last century and then a bit when Princeton was a hallmark seminary. But, but someone, uh, he, he wrote a little book called, I don't know what it's called, uh, Messages to My Students or something like that. And, and he wrote this little thing. He says, sometimes people say to me that 10 minutes on my knees is better than 10 hours over my books. And Warfield said, what? That can't be better than 10 hours over my books on my knees. It's, it's both of these, you see. Together. We need them both. So Paul says, this is what is yours. Now let's pray that you see it. And so the final one that he prays about for them is that they would know the power of God. That is towards them. And what's helpful here is that he says, no, you've already seen a demonstration of this power. Because you've seen a demonstration of this power. And this power is the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father and put everything under his feet and gave him his head over the church. Notice these verses. Um, Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over the over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of that of him that fills who feels all in all. So, if our calling takes us to the beginning of our Christian life, and the inheritance to the end, this power spans the two. How do we know that this calling is going to be fulfilled? How do we know that we'll persevere to get to the inheritance? By the power of God. John Stott, Anglican, dead guy, 
recently, fairly, um, uh, asked this question. He says, what are two things that human beings can't control? Death and evil. He says, but Christ has conquered them both. And we've seen a demonstration of that power. In the resurrection of Jesus, he conquers death. In his ascension, as all things are put under his feet, he conquers evil. And so he says, what Paul is praying is that we would now know that this holiness is ours. That this walk with Christ is ours. That this perseverance is ours. Why? Because on the one hand, death can't take away the inheritance because Jesus has conquered death. We've seen it. We shall live, you see. And then he says also that with Christ ruling and reigning over all things, all powers and principalities, and we'll find out in chapter 2 that we're seated with him, that with Christ ruling and reigning over all things, then what we find is that he is defeating evil. And so in him, we defeat it as well. So he says, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that you've been called to a great calling. A great calling. A calling to be holy. A calling to belong to God through Jesus Christ. To be his child. A calling that is for the praise of his glorious grace. That you have a great inheritance. It's of great value. And there's power that's enabling you to live out this calling. And to see your inheritance. So Paul says, I want your eyes to be open to that. I want you to really know that. My question for me as I read this is, do I? I mean, on a good day, I say, yeah. But do I pray this prayer enough? No. Should I? Yes. Will I begin? Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Yes. And God will give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That I may know him. That would open the eyes of my heart. I may be enlightened to know the hope of his calling upon me. To be his, to follow him, to live to the praise of his glorious grace. That I may value holiness. That I may know the riches, really, of this glorious inheritance that I may so value it and know its value that the things of the world would just simply fade away in comparison. And that I may know this power that is at work within me. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that raised me from death to life spiritually and one day to physical life for eternity as well. That power, that power that no human being has, only God has, but he's demonstrated it in Christ and even in our lives to give us new life. And this power that seated Jesus 
to rule and reign over evil. And there's power that's towards us so that we too can have power over evil. And we know that we can pray that prayer because on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and he took bread and broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, we hear the words of the apostle when he says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And so, yes, we declare it. This table declares the Lord's death. He conquered death. This table really declares the resurrection of Jesus because we're declaring his death until he comes. And so he must be alive in order to come. So he's declaring the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and the ruling and reigning of Jesus. We're declaring the whole work of Christ as we as we see this table. And so the prayer that we pray as we come is that we'd really know it. We'd really know it. Oh, we believe it. But let's face it, there are times when it's more theoretical than real. And so the prayer is, oh God, may it be real. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that you would, by your mercy and grace, take this bread and juice and set it apart from its very common use that just sort of fills our stomachs to now so that we can know that we're in the very presence of this one Jesus by his Spirit. And so we pray, Spirit of Truth, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we may know God through Jesus Christ, that our hearts may be enlightened, that we might be able to see all of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, the great hope of his calling, the glorious inheritance that is ours, and the great power that is towards us. Enable us to see it, to experience it, to know it. And this I pray in Jesus' name.